0: The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. John 17, beginning at verse 20. so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray together. Father, we realize this is what our Lord Jesus is asking for us constantly, for our oneness. Make us the beautiful sight of which we've sung. Unite us in truth and love, that the world may see something remarkable, in the fellowship of your people, something that cannot be produced by human causes, and that the world may know that you sent your Son into the world and that you have loved us and that the world might come to believe in him. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Several weeks ago when we were considering this prayer uh, we already glanced at the beginning of this paragraph verse 20 a new section in Jesus prayer. We notice that now he's lifting his sights beyond the apostles who were there that evening overhearing his urgent plea to the father in the hours before his arrest and suffering and crucifixion. From this point on in the prayer his sights will be lifted across the Greco-Roman world and around the world and down through the generations to all the men and the women and the boys and the girls whom the father had given to him and whom he had come to redeem the people who would come to faith now through the word of the Apostles so we've heard Jesus pray for himself and ask that the father would again bestow upon him all the visible glory that he had shared with the Father from all eternity because he'd now come to the point of successfully completing his redemptive mission as he would on the cross the following afternoon. We've heard him ask the Father to protect the apostles as he returned to heaven, but they stayed in this spiritually and physically dangerous world for the sake of those who would believe in Jesus' name for you. And for me. So now he prays for us. And what does he pray for us? That they may be one for our unity. You hear it three times over. Verse 21. That they may all be one. Verse 22. That they may be one as we, Father, are one. As the Father and the Son are one. And again in verse 23. That they may be completed into one. Or made perfectly one. A threefold plea from Jesus. It's deeply on his heart. We confess in the words of the Nicene Creed that we believe that Christ came to redeem and create one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Four attributes of Jesus' church. Four attributes that are hard to hold together. In fact, Jesus is the only one that can hold them together. Notice one and at the same time holy. One and at the same time Catholic, universal, embracing all the diversity of the human family. One and at the same time grounded in the apostolic truth revealed in the scriptures and committed to the apostolic mission of bringing all the nations to the feet of Jesus. I would have thought that's a pretty impossible goal to attempt. I would have thought that's a pretty unreasonable prayer to ask if it weren't for the fact that Jesus were asking it. (laughs) And that Jesus would lay his life on the line the next afternoon to make it happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. It seems so unlikely when we look over the history of the church from, for the last couple thousand years since he spoke this prayer. That there should be such a unity. But when Jesus asks the Father for something, we know we'd better pay attention to it. And we know we'd better pay attention to how he may intend to change us by his word and by his spirit in order that we get in line with his agenda for his church. So I want to ask very briefly three questions of this text. What kind of unity is Jesus asking for on our behalf? Where does this unity come from? And what is God's purpose for our unity? First of all, what kind of unity is Jesus asking for I think if we look at this text intensively and in its context, we see four attributes. I'm going to spend most time, most of the time on this one because I think this is the one we have the most difficult uh, difficulty grasping. First of all, notice that it is a unity that is a creaturely replica of the unity of mutual love and purpose that unites the divine persons of the Trinity. Twice over, Jesus makes an analogy, a comparison, between the unity that he and the Father enjoy with one another eternally in that mystery of the triune God, three distinct persons, each with his own identity, each with their interrelationships, each with their own distinctive missions in creation and redemption, and yet fully united, one God, and certainly fully united in purpose and in affection and in honor and all those things that tie these divine persons together. Well, we will never have quite that unity because we're only creatures. But Jesus says there's to be something among us that's like that. Something among us on a creaturely level. No erasure of the creature creator-creature distinction. No mystical or ontological absorption of us into the divine. No, nothing like that. But a unity of purpose, honor, Love, affection among us that is a kind of creaturely replica of the infinite unity of the triune members of the the divine trinity, of the holy trinity. I don't know if I can say much more about that. I think we're really probing at 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 the edges of a mystery that God has given us just a glimpse into. But we need to pay attention to that because that's really at the heart of Jesus' definition of the unity of believers with one another. Secondly, notice that it's a unity that includes and embraces a wide diversity of people. Now, you may not see it as explicitly here in the prayer, but remember that Jesus is praying for all those who will believe through the Apostle's word. And earlier in this gospel, he has used this unity language to emphasize the variety of people who are going to come to faith, John 10, he speaks as the good shepherd. And after speaking of his sacrifice, laying down his life for his sheep, he also says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is not the physical children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's echoing... Ezekiel at that point, Ezekiel 34. One flock bringing other sheep in. That not only reveals Jesus' intention that all who trust in him would be deeply committed to each other in our conviction and in our affection. It also hints at the challenge that he's tackling here. Bringing outsiders in to this sheepfold. Sheep that don't know the right pecking order. Well, pecking order is not quite right for sheep. But you know, the grazing order, I guess. Uh, who don't know exactly where everybody's place is. Sheep that come with different cultures and different languages and different customs and different assumptions. And Jesus says, I'm going to make all these different kinds of sheep. One flock. Under me, the one shepherd. It's Hard, but it's not impossible for a group, a church even, to maintain an appearance of unity if everybody's basically alike. If you sort of abandon the idea that unity has to be combined with the Catholicity of the church, universality of the church. Homogenized churches have members who get along so well because they're all our kind of people, right? And if people come in who are not our kind of people, who maybe have an accent or who maybe come from a different culture and paid attention to the clock in a different way than we do. Well, they can stay. We won't throw them out. But, you know, they're just not quite like us. But Jesus intends to bring together a flock where people not like us in a lot of superficial ways are deeply united to all of us by something far, more, far stronger, far more profound than the things that so often divide us it's a unity that is combined with a wide diversity and then most amazing of all I think it's a unity that's to be visible to the world did you notice he says that twice here his purpose and we'll come back to that in just a moment but his purpose is that the world may believe that you sent me through the unity that they see and the followers of Jesus verse 21 again in verse 23 that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you loved me it's tempting to let Jesus' prayer off the hook, well, to let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, we're talking here about a spiritual unity, you know, by which we mean not a unity created by the Holy Spirit, but an invisible unity that you'd never guess by looking at a church, you know, we're all one, uh, even if we can't worship in good conscience in the same congregation, even if we haven't you know, fully agreed on all those things, it's, it's, it's easy uh, to compromise Uh, the visibility here. But Jesus says that the world needs to be able to see it somehow. The world needs to be able to observe it and so to know that the Father has sent the Son. We might say, well, that's maybe it's a completely and purely eschatological unity, all future. When we are fully one, then the world will see that the Father sent the Son and then they'll regret it. But That doesn't really sound like Jesus' intention here, that the world may believe as well as know. He seems to have a redemptive purpose for the world in the unity of the church. And so he prays that we might be, yes, there is an eschatological dimension, that we might be perfectly brought to one, completed in unity. That's still out there a long way out, perhaps, maybe briefly if Jesus comes back soon. And certainly we realize the wisdom of Paul's statement that we are in a growing phase, Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man. We're not there yet. But still, it seems as if even in this imperfect and immature form, Jesus expects the church to display a unity that the world can see and can be convicted of the reality of Jesus' mission. It's visible. Fourth thing about this unity is that it is a unity of consecration to the Father through the truth that is God's word. Now, that's not immediately in our text. It's just before our text when Jesus prayed for, about consecrating, sanctifying his apostles in the truth, And he said, your word is truth. He defines the unity that Jesus wants and expects to see among us as a unity that is characterized by our being consecrated to the purposes of God rather than our own agenda. And that consecration takes place as our minds and hearts are captivated by the word because that word is the truth that transforms us. You see, no compromise of apostolic truth In order to get unity, a lot of places in the church do that. The mainline church has done that for a long time. Yes, we have a kind of unity. All all the way back in 1925, uh, one of the tributaries that came into the World Council of Churches held a big conference on life and work in Stockholm, Sweden, and came up with the slogan Doctrine divides, service unites. Doctrine divides, service unites. And you can see the logic of that. You know, We can get along with one another if we all pick up our hammers and build homes for the, for the poor with habitat for humanity much more easily than if we end up trying to figure out whether we're on the same page with respect to the incarnation of the eternal second person of the Trinity as Jesus of Nazareth or whether his death and resurrection is the only way to life. That, that, that's bound to divide us, so the theory goes. And sometimes we hear that in evangelical churches, too. We need to focus much more on ministry and not be so hung up on doctrine. And, of course, our parts of the church react to that, and I think rightly so. A unity that is not grounded in the central truths of the gospel, in the identity of Jesus and his redemptive mission, is a false unity. It's a superficial unity. It's not unity in Christ at all. We're right about that. But then the question comes, if we're right about that and our allegiance to apostolic revelation is on the right track on those issues, does that mean that our commitment to apostolic truth prevents us from demonstrating a unity to the watching world until we come to total agreement on every point of everything that we might ever ask the Bible, on whether the regulative principle of worship in the Scripture per- permits a pitch pipe, or a piano, or an organ, or electronic keyboard, or a guitar. Could those all be okay? Or is there one apostolic answer to that? How do we hit that balance between commitment to the truth and working toward greater understanding of the truth and also respecting and loving brothers and sisters who don't see the truth as we do? Uh, Absolutely it has to be grounded in the truth. That's what Jesus has said in this prayer. And how do we pursue that? That's hard. Actually, that's a matter for at least a bunch of hours of lecture, which we don't have time for now. But it's worth thinking about and wrestling with, and we need to continue to do so. In fact, it's so hard that we might be tempted to think that this is all impossible, even to make progress toward. And yet, Jesus points us, in answer to our second question, to the source of a unity that can be visible to the world, at least in beginning form, and we need to pursue it. Jesus says in this little part of the prayer, I have given them the glory that you gave to me. Of course, he's spoken earlier in the prayer about having shown the Father's name and given the Father's words to them. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Earlier in John's Gospel, John said that Jesus did his miraculous signs to display his glory And his disciples believed in him. And all the way back in the prologue. John said we have seen his glory. The glory is of the one and only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. It's the revelation of God in the word. In the son. In the word that bears witness to the son. The written word. That unifies our hearts. And subdues our wild desires to his agenda. That we be one in truth and in love and of course with the word Jesus sends the spirit he also says here he talks about the indwelling of the father and the son with us I and them and you and me he says to the father in verse 23 of course he's been speaking that whole evening about the coming of the spirit of truth uh, that they will not be left orphans and in fact that the father and the son will come to take up his residence in these disciples and in us who come to believe through their name, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's really only the indwelling, transforming presence of the triune God, the Father and the Son, living in us through the presence of the Spirit that can tame us and pry our naturally selfish hearts open to be, as the Apostle Paul says, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, not acting out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, and looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's the opening verses of Philippians 2. We need the Spirit. We need the Word. Not surprising. To transform us in this way, too. To make us one in such a way that the world will see and take notice that something extraordinary is happening among us. That's the Father's purpose. We saw it earlier when we saw that this unity is to be visible, even visible to the watching world. But Jesus reinforces that in verses 21 and 23, that the world may believe that you sent me, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. No competition between cultivating our love and unity for one another and keeping in mind our witness to the watching world. Again, churches tend to specialize, don't we? Some churches say we're all about outreach because we are living in an increasingly unreached generation. We need to reach out to those who've not been touched by the gospel and find creative ways to do that and bring them in and and preach the full gospel of God so that they might come to faith. But such outreach-focused churches can sometimes kind of forget the need to nurture and to feed and to cultivate unity among the newborn and maturing believers in Christ. And sometimes, in reaction to that outreach focus, inreach focused churches say we're going to focus on maintaining the truth and loving one another, a loving, warm family of God, God pilgrims in this generation, rightly so, but sometimes we can forget the reason for our pilgrimage. The reason we're still in the wilderness it's because there are those other strangers out there who need to see Christ demonstrate his power in transforming us into one heart and one mind one affection, one purpose and say I need that and be drawn to hear of the sovereign grace of Christ the cross of Christ by which He not only dismantled that huge wall that separated every one of us from the Father, the wall of our guilt and rebellion and the Father's righteous wrath on that. He bore all that for us. But as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he also dismantled the walls that divide us from one another and brought us together since it's only through his body that we can come to the Father at all. Jesus is praying that we be one in a way that at a creaturely level reflects the unity of the triune God, in a way that can be seen despite all of our diversity, that can be seen and that is grounded in truth. He put his life on the line for it. He left his word and spirit among us to accomplish it, that he might receive glory as the world is caused to stand up and take notice. The Father has sent the Son. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, and we ask you to give us as strong a longing for our unity as your son has for us. Give us a hunger and a thirst to display our oneness in the truth of your word, in selfless concern for one another, in ways that can be seen in ways that glorify you and deflect all attention from ourselves, but rather direct the world's attention to Jesus, the Son whom you sent into the world, to redeem a people for your own name, both of Israel's flock and from the flocks of all the nations, and you've brought us in. Unite us, Father, so that the world might know that you have sent the Son and give glory to you, As they turn in faith to Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.